right, so we are moving through a series of messages that are based uh, on what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the first teaching recorded by Matthew of Jesus to his followers. And this is found in your Bible in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading this morning verses 1 through 12. Um, I just might point out we've been sort of in the same uh, passage uh, for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we are we looked two weeks ago at the first three Beatitudes, really, and then we took a look last week at some of the Old Testament roots uh, to these teachings of Christ, and then this week we're going to really take a look at uh, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh Beatitudes, and then we'll pick up in verse 10 next week. So uh, just so you kind of know where we are, um, and if you're wondering why we're reading the same passage we read a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's because God hasn't finished with you yet. He's still trying to teach us something, right? So here we go. Uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, as we look at this idea of uh, this sort of uh, the messy growth that God calls us to as his children. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so when we started this series, we, I tried to show some of the structure that is sort of inherently in place in this passage. And if you look at the, um, if you look at the insert in your bulletin for just a minute, um, you see sort of these two bookends at either end of the Beatitudes where you have Jesus saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have that in verse 3, and then again in verse 10. And that is sort of the beginning of, of wondering when you're looking at a text and you see these two parallel phrases, well, maybe this is, an, this is a progression of thought. Maybe Jesus is bringing this whole thing full circle. And then there was another cue that we pointed out, that that word righteousness occurs in verse 10 
and then in verse 6. And so verse 10 is tied, uh, if, if this theory holds, verse 10 is tied back to verse 3, and then it's also tied to verse 6, which makes verse 3 the beginning, verse 10 the end, and verse 6 sort of a focal point if these textual clues are valid. Oh, you're way ahead of me. Well, now's good. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me try to show you what I'm, what I'm suggesting. Now, let me, let me also just say this. Um, sometimes people who do what I do can impose a little too much uh, structure onto a text. You know, Jesus is, is teaching to a group of people and he's trying to uh, change their hearts, souls, and minds. And so he's involved in this process of evoking within them and stirring them in a way that probably was not, uh, did not feel very organized, if you will, to the, to the original listeners of this passage. So don't, don't because of all the structure I'm, I'm sort of imposing on this, don't feel like, don't miss the stirring, right? The point is how Jesus stirs our souls. But I think it's, it's helpful because there's, there are enough cues in the text, in this passage, to suggest that there's some real structure here. And when we, when we sort of unpack that structure, we can see deeper into what Christ wants us to know. That's the hope. Um, but just keep in mind that the, the stuff we just read is the Word of God. All this other stuff is just a human attempt to, to make sense out of it, to organize it, and, and make it more accessible for the stirring of our souls. So that's, you know, that's my little precautionary point. Okay, so the first three Beatitudes constitute this group of Beatitudes of need, um, this poor in spirit, this mourning of our sin, uh, this call to meekness. We, we, need to, uh, we need to be poor in spirit, we need to mourn, we need to be meek if we are to follow Christ. And, and so I'm suggesting that these first three Beatitudes have something in common that then point us to this central Beatitude where we're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the righteousness of God, not our own self-righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through Christ. And so you might even say that these these manifestations of the work of God in our hearts and souls create hunger and thirst. In other words, we talked about this previously, but when we are experiencing poverty of spirit, when we have nothing left, we're hungry and thirsty for what God has. When we mourn over our own sin, we are hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. When we uh, lay down our own uh, temptation to, to pursue things for ourselves and become meek, it leaves us in a position of need where we're not taking care of ourselves, we're waiting and resting and trusting God to take care of us. And so these beatitudes of need create this hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, when that, when God begins to quench and satisfy that hunger and thirst, what comes forth from this process is our being able to be more merciful, more pure in heart, and our being able to make to be peacemakers. We grow into these capacities as Christians. And so we have sort of on one end the beatitudes of need that create a hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, out of which comes the, the beatitudes of our growth as Christians, our development as children of God. Uh, one of the phrases you see in this passage. Um, now, what, I will, what, I will, what I'm proposing this morning is an additional uh, few lines of connection. Okay? Everything goes through this, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. But I, I want to try to sort of demonstrate this, this additional connectivity in these teachings. So let's go to poor in spirit. My, my theory is, if I'm, if I'm reading this structure correctly, that it, our poverty of spirit leaves us in a position where we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And because we've been in need, in impoverished, an impoverished state and in need of God's mercy, we are then able to be merciful to others. Does that make sense? Um, and, and really, in, in some ways, not until then. Uh, what may look like mercy may just be our own superiority complex if we've never really been in this position of needing or in, in need of God's mercy, that beatitude of need. Um, okay, so let me try to begin to work our way through this passage. My suggestion is, if we can we go back one more time, Lori, just up one slide. All right, my suggestion is these three beatitudes of need, if, we, if I had the like ability to do PowerPoint better, I would draw a line from poor in spirit to merciful, from mourning to purity of heart, and from meekness to the call to be peacemakers. That each one of those relate directly to its counterpart on the other side. And we'll, that's what I'm going to try to unpack as we move through uh, verses 6 through 9 of this passage. Um, So let me just take you back in time in my own life. And I've told this, this story before, but um, w- when I went off to college, here's how I picked the, the school that I wanted to go to. I looked at all the schools that all my friends were going to, and I ruled them out. I said, I, I don't. I, don't, I want a change. I'm not really happy with who I am, and I want to be different. And so I intentionally picked an obscure little college in south-central Tennessee. It's up on top of a mountain. Beautiful place. The campus is modeled after Oxford in England in spectacular architecture. Great place to, to put yourself in a little academic-type mood. Um, And I was so excited. 
because when all the when all the decisions were made and and all I knew where everybody was going, not a solitary other soul from my uh, very large 5A high school in Houston was going to this little obscure, you know, 1,100 student uh, liberal arts college in, in Tennessee. So I, I had my, my plan was working. The new me was soon to emerge. Um, I was very excited about this, and I thought that if I got a whole new set of people that didn't know me before, I could fool them all into thinking I was a great guy, right? And uh, I got there and, you know, got settled in, and uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but my wife and I met our very first day on campus, um, and uh, we were invited the university through a theme party, like a Bahamas theme party. And uh, I didn't know this, but when you're in college, this is just a good tip for you. When you go to college, don't dress to the theme. It, no, no cool people dress to the theme. So I show up in a pair of purple and orange paisley jams. You remember the jams, right? And a white kind of beach shirt, almost like a pirate shirt kind of thing. And I'm the only person at the party dressed to a beach theme. Okay, so my, my new me was, you could either think it was working really well or not so well, all right? And uh, so I was just ecstatic at uh, the opportunity to kind of reinvent myself. And it was just a couple of weeks, maybe three or four weeks uh, later, that this kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it depression in the clinical sense of the word, but I was depressed about one simple thing that I was learning. Uh, change of venue does not bring about change of soul. I was still me. I was the same me I was kind of trying to get away from. And I'm in a whole new place. And as people be- get to know me a little bit better and a little bit better, they're really getting to know the same Tom that had left Memorial High School uh, to get away from himself. And I-, I guess I was left wondering, how how does change happen? How can we change? How can we progress in this in this thing we call our faith. And uh, Jesus, as he sort of addresses this very question at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, throws out not, not a few simple steps to changing your soul, but this spaghetti bowl of weirdness, right? The original listeners would have heard him say, Happy are the poor in spirit. That's how their minds would have first heard the words that he uttered. Happy are the poor in... What? I thought you were the Messiah. You know, shouldn't we be getting a, a motivational speaker on the power of positive thinking or something like that? I mean, happy, poor in spirit, what? Happy are those who mourn? That doesn't even make sense. 
Happy are the meek? No, they're not going to inherit the earth. They're going to get walked all over. What in the world is this guy saying? Happy are those who hunger and thirst. No, I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. That's not happy. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. This does not sound like the description of a happy person. But what Jesus is doing is he is, he is trying to drill down to the core of who we are so that true change, spiritual change, change initiated by the hand of God can take place. Let's take a look at this um, process. And I'm going to suggest that that verse 3, that poor in spirit, tells us that you know it, it is when our spiritual poverty drives us to hunger and thirst for righteousness that we develop an acute appreciation for our own need for God's mercy. And when we recognize our need for God's mercy, we are able to demonstrate mercy to others. That is our call, to be a people who can demonstrate mercy to others. But I would be robbing you of what Jesus is trying to convey here if we didn't start the call to demonstrate mercy to others with the call to, to begin with our spiritual poverty. It starts there. Because once we, once we realize that we are impoverished spiritually, uh, we, we, we know that we lack holiness in and of ourselves. We then begin to thirst for Christ's righteousness. And it is that thirst that moves us toward mercy. Because we have experienced mercy, we have been in need of God's mercy, we recognize that in others. And we are able to respond in kind. We move towards mercy by first receiving God's abundant mercy and then by extending God's abundant mercy to others. Our call to mercy begins with our recognition of our spiritual poverty. Then, as we move through these teachings of Christ, we see another connection. That when we are mourning over our sin, when we are uh, in despair over the fact that I cannot change myself, my heart is the same today as it was yesterday, though I have tried and tried again to fix it or change it. When I am mourning over my sin, this, this also pushes us to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ, and we develop an acute awareness of our own sinfulness. And as we realize that our sin stands between us and the progress God wants to make in our lives, and we, we mourn over that, uh, that 
causes us to become more pure in heart. Let me assure you, you cannot become more pure in heart by trying not to sin. Is that clear? The path to purity of heart does not come through your effort. And this is abundantly clear in in what Christ is saying if, in fact, these two sides of these Beatitudes are connected. That purity of heart starts with mourning over our sin. It begins there. And as we grow in awareness of our sin, so also we grow in weariness of our sin. This is the way in which God grows us. Um, You know, what is spiritual maturity? I had a conversation about this term with some friends of mine, and... and, um, American Christianity has become obsessed with this idea of spiritual maturity and how it is attained. Let me, let me give you a definition based on this passage. Um, blessed are those who mourn. When I the more mature I become spiritually, the more acutely aware I am of my own sinfulness. This is, this is where the separation begins between the spiritually mature and the spiritually immature. When, when we see uh, the sin of some prominent figure on television, political or religious or whoever, and we say things like, well, how dare they? I can't believe that a person in that position would fill in the blank. That's spiritual immaturity. When we see that and we say, there but by the grace of God go I. I am capable of that. I am that sinful. I am that bad then we are on the path to spiritual maturity. The flaw that we make is to say things like, well, if I can make sure that I don't, and then fill in the blank, I will be more spiritually mature. If I do these things, I will be more spiritually mature. And what Jesus is saying is, stop, stop. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And I believe his implication is over our own sin. As we grow in awareness of our sin and in weariness of our sin, we move toward purity of heart. I don't know why God is so patient with us. But He will allow me to come to the end of myself time.
time and time again. He will allow me to say, okay, God, I promise I'll never do that again. And then fall again. And he's there. And his grace is covering me the whole time. And he's just waiting for me to grow weary of my own sin and my own attempts to fix my sin or that of others. And then I move toward purity of heart when I find comfort in Christ's sacrifice. And there I begin to hunger for Christ's righteousness. Not my ability to do good, but the good that Christ has done for me in His life, His death, and His resurrection. This is the Gospel. Not how well we can behave as Christians, but what Christ has done for us on the cross. Through our spiritual poverty, we gain the ability to demonstrate mercy to others. And through mourning over our own sin, we begin to cultivate spiritual purity within ourselves. So also, those who are meek are able to make peace. Think about this idea of meekness. It, it, and we talked about this, I think, in the first week of this series. It is, it is the antithesis of the American ideal, isn't it? Uh, in America, we pride ourselves on being able to take care of ourselves. That's a fundamental American ideal, our ability to take care of ourselves. What Jesus is saying to his followers is that in, in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom, the earthly political systems in which you live, but in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace, it works the opposite. So that trying to take care of yourself is a death sentence. And Jesus said this in a, in a variety of ways, right? Those who are last shall be first, and those who are first shall be last. But he, he issues to us this call to make peace. And that begins, that starts with our meekness. This call to cease from our selfish striving, this striving to fend for ourselves, it is part of our reality here on earth that we must work and take care of ourselves. The reality in the kingdom of God is that it is all by grace. And if we are striving to take care of ourselves spiritually, to reach heaven ourselves, we're done. It doesn't work that way. And so we are to cease from our selfish striving and find confidence in our eternal inheritance. God says in this passage that the meek will inherit the earth 
and that the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called the sons of God. We have a place in the family of God that is secure, that is fixed for us, not by what we have done or what we can do or will do, but that is fixed and secured for us by what Christ has done. And so this beginning in meekness where we lay down this desire to fight and fend for ourselves, that person who has laid that down is in a position to move toward making peace. Their agenda is set aside. Um, I, I should have looked up the name of the organization, and I'm, I'm not sure you know, everything that it's about, but a few years back, um, Jimmy Carter and Nelson Mandela and I think Desmond Tutu of South Africa, Bishop of South Africa, Anglican Bishop of South Africa, and a few others formed this organization, and if I'm not mistaken, they called it the Elders. And in their attempt to define for anyone who cared to pay attention what they were doing, uh, they laid out their definition of what an elder is. And one of the lines in that definition was powerful. It simply said, these are men who have nothing left to prove. There is strength in this meekness where we can say, I, I don't have to prove myself. I have confidence in who I am in Christ. I have received that as a gift of God by grace. And this allows me to move into the action and activity of making peace. Making peace with God your Father, which is a huge idea that Jesus is developing in this passage. Uh, sons of God would have tweaked the ears of those listening. They were comfortable with being called sons of Abraham, but sons of God probably would have set them on the edge of their seat. What? Wait a minute. What does that mean? Um, you are at peace with God the Father because He has made you His son through Christ. You are at peace with yourself because at once, at one point, we were in this state of spiritual impoverishment, unable to provide for ourselves the grace we so desperately needed. And God solved that problem through Christ. In place of our poverty, we've been given the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we mourn over our sin, we've been comforted by God Himself. In meekness, we have arrived to the position where we stand to inherit the world. 
in our hunger and thirst we have been filled. As an agent of mercy, you have been shown mercy. And in the purity of heart that God is cultivating within you, you are seeing the face of God. As a peacemaker, as one who lays down your own agenda and seeks the good of the kingdom and the good of others, you have become, through what Christ has done for you, a child of God. You are at peace with God your Father, with yourself, and with everyone whom God calls you to touch. You have been put in this position where you know that your poverty of spirit has led you to the fullness of the gospel. All the way through this um, almost bizarre process that Christ lays out. I said this before, I'll say it again. There are not seven easy steps to spiritual growth. It does not work that way. The Christian life is a train wreck. As our sin collides with the grace of God, it's a mess. And as we gradually mourn over our sin and grow weary of that which we contribute to the gospel, we become meek and restful and patient. And we lay down our agendas and we're able to seek the peace and well-being of those beyond ourselves and our circle of relationships. God has called us into the fullness of this gospel. Um, I'll just say that if you think this part was weird, wait till next week. Because Jesus concludes his Beatitudes with, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Here's the point. God has called us into this state of spiritual need to create in us a hunger and a thirst for His righteousness. And from that, He will grow us, uh, not easily, not comfortably, um, not even obviously, but with patience and grace and love. He walks through this crazy life with us and sets the hope of his gospel before us. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you, you love the messes that we are. And Lord, we thank you that you do not leave our spiritual growth up to us, but that you patiently persist in your love for us. And you wait, and you watch, and you prop us up and carry us along until, 
until, Lord, we see the fruit of peace in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Lord, may we be your peacemakers on this earth. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us through this messy process of growth toward the end that we may bring your peace to bear on this hurting and warring world in which we live. In your Son's name we pray.